The Iranian regime cancels the country's so-called morality police, while the Iranian Navy harasses U.S. ships in the Strait of Hormuz. Newsmax contributor and foreign policy expert Dr. Walid Faris is here with analysis and a new book. The pro-abortion group Jane's Revenge threatens a Catholic student center in Nebraska. Catholic League president and sociologist Dr. Bill Donahue weighs in. And Father Dwight Longenecker will discuss his new book, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. And the star of the hit streaming drama, The Chosen, Jonathan Rumi, talks about the Advent Prayer Challenge. The world over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. An important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get started. The Islamic Republic of Iran has been a threat to its own people, the region, and the U.S. for over four decades. The country has been rocked by months of protests on a scale we've not seen since the 1979 Islamic Revolution sparked by the death of Masha Amini in September. How significant are these protests, and how should the U.S. be dealing with Iran now? Joining me to discuss this and much more foreign policy expert and author of the upcoming book, Iran, an imperialist republic and U.S. policy, Dr. Walid Faris. Walid, welcome back to the program. Thank Great you to for see having you. me. Before we discuss your upcoming book on Iran, I want to talk for a moment about Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of, of uh, Israel. He won re-election last month while currently uh, standing trial on corruption charges. He's now facing backlash from Jews in the U.S., as well as those in Israel who are totally opposed to his vision of creating a right-wing government. Netanyahu has promised to hand control over Israel's internal security to an ultra-nationalist group, and, to, and he's set to give a religious party control of the West Bank and authority over the daily lives of those occupied territories. What do you make of Netanyahu's vision and the reaction to it? Well, there are two Netanyahu agendas. One that has to do with forming his own government. And in mm -hmm. Israel, it's a parliamentary, parliamentarian system, so you need to have a majority. To have a majority, you need all political parties who will support you. And two of these political parties, if not more, are the religious right wing in Israel. Mm -hmm. So he needs them. He needs to satisfy them. He's making all these statements. It's not the first time. I've been monitoring Bibi Netanyahu for the last 20, 25 years. Right. Then once the government is formed, he will come back to the center invoking what? national security, uh -huh. where he can have a majority of Israelis, including sometimes the left of center. So these are Israeli politics uh, for many years. Yeah, it's part of This is part yeah. of the scramble. It's how it shakes out. Uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken vowed U.S. support for Israel on Sunday. But listen to what he said here. We continue to believe, as the president said on the trip to the Holy Land this summer, that two states based on the 1967 lines with mutually agreed swaps remains the best way to achieve our goal of Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in peace and security. We will also continue to unequivocally oppose any acts that undermine the prospects of a two-state solution, including but not limited to settlement expansion, moves towards annexation of the West Bank, 
disruption to the historic status quo at holy sites, demolitions and evictions, and incitement to violence. Walid Ferris, how do you foresee this relationship between Israel under Netanyahu and the Biden administration here in the U.S.? And what of those holy sites, the status of the holy sites? First of all, we don't need to be a prophet to understand that these two governments are going to clash politically in 2023, perhaps all the way to 2024. Why? It's not just about the domestic sites and issues in Israel. It's about much larger matter, which is the Iran deal. Mm. The Bibi Netanyahu government is going to oppose the Iran deal. He has an alliance with the Arab coalition. He has now probably an alliance with the opposition inside Iran. And he has the biggest alliance with whom? With the majority in the House. So that confederation is going to be clashing with the Biden administration. But at the same time, you ask me about the sites. Right. That's the most difficult issue in the entire Israeli-Palestinian uh, quagmire at this point in time. Mm. Well, we've got to, yeah, I mean, this is 800 years. The yeah. Franciscans have had custody of those sites. They're obviously important to people around the world. They so are. one would hope the Israeli government would be sensitive to that, and uh, as well as the Palestinians. This yes. is important to, to all people. Uh, China's President Xi is in Saudi Arabia this week looking to firm up technology and economic ties in the region. Now, reports indicate that more than 20 initial agreements worth over 29 billion U.S. dollars will be signed during Xi's visit to the kingdom. China is the Saudi's largest consumer of oil. He was asked, uh, when asked about Xi's trip, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby had this to say. He said, we are mindful of the influence that China's trying to grow around the world. The Middle East is certainly one of those regions where they want to deepen their level of influence. We believe that many of the things they're trying to pursue and the manner in which they're trying to pursue it are not conducive to preserving the international rules-based order, end quote. Uh, Waleed, first of all, your, your impression of what you heard there, I don't think she cares about the rules-based international order, with all due respect. I don't think they care about that. They care about their own power, number one. They care about cash, number two. And they care about balancing with the United States. The problem, though, uh, is that a couple of years ago, we advised the Biden administration to pay attention to the Arab coalition. Don't put pressure on the UAE, on the Abraham Accords, mm -hmm. on the Saudis, mm -hmm. on the Egyptians. That's why now the president of Egypt is here, because they understood that if they put a lot of pressure on their allies, including on Israel, it's going to backfire. Mm -hmm. The Saudis and the UAE are in Moscow, are in China. They're not anti-American, but they're telling us, you're doing your own interest. You went to Iran to do the Iran deal. We are going to China to do our own mm -hmm. deal as well. So it all goes back to what we have tried to do. Remember, during the Trump administration, the Saudis, the Arabs, Israel, were all with Trump and then were coordinating their actions in the Middle East and got to the Riyadh Well, we meeting. played the Middle East, and your, your advice in the Trump administration, the, the government had readjusted and were playing the entire Middle East against Iran. Biden and the Obama administration have always wanted to, for whatever reason, yeah. make a deal with Iran. That alienates all of our partners. And by the way, breaking news, mm -hmm. that, uh, that hostage swap yeah. we saw today, uh, that the, the uh, drug-using uh, member of the women's football team, uh, or basketball team, rather, and this arms dealer that we had, they traded those parties. Unbelievable. Where did they do it? Saudi Arabia. Yes, that's the new role of the Saudis. They're they trying to be the Saudi Margaret. Arabia. Yes, And the Saudis, the, the, the Saudis are playing this up. The American 
You didn't hear anything from the Biden administration on this. They're trying to downplay it because the Saudis told him to get lost when he wanted oil. Well, they're going to hear from the House uh, in the next months. There will be a lot of panels to discuss what have we done in 2021. We have withdrawn from Afghanistan. And that was a disaster because we empowered the Taliban, we empowered the jihadists. We rushed immediately to revive the Iran deal, which basically was criticized by the Israelis, by the Iranian opposition, yeah. and by all our Arab allies. Since we did this, many things have started to change in the Middle East. No, it's, it's, it's scattered. Uh, let's move on to Iran. According to several reports, over 400 protesters have been killed mm -hmm. and about 18,000 arrested or detained since the protests began in Iran this September. Why has this revolt been so resilient, Waleed? Well, there are so many reasons. My book will explain most of it. But for us, for our public, we could say it is being led by women. Second, it's backed by teenagers, boys and girls. And this is half of Iran. Raymond, half of Iran are people under the age of 20 and 18. The current generation demonstrating in the streets Average age, 14 to 17. Mm. How can a regime at the end of the day crush what would be the future of Iran, these young uh, people? Is that why they've been reluctant to put them down? We haven't seen the, the, the you know, putting down of protests as they have in the past. Look, the Iranian regime is smart. They know if they are, you know, they, there is a bloodshed among youth. This would create an explosion inside Iran. They, they could take them to the international tribunal. But what is very important... Iran is not, the regime, is not even able to cut down the Internet. And people will ask me why. Well, over the past few years, the Iranians themselves built an economy based on 80 percent on Internet. So if they ah. cut the Internet for the protesters, they will go down as well. Yes. Wow. Uh, this week, uh, a sister of the Iranian supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, said she has cut ties with her brother, calling him a despotic caliph who is ignoring the voice of Iranians. She also called on security forces to lay down their arms and join the protesters. What do you make of this? Is this the beginning of something? Now, I, I hesitate to say this because we saw this during the Green Revolution. Well, we saw when Oh, yeah. We saw it, Raymond, since 1999, the first uprising, which mm -hmm. we didn't hear anything about because it was 1999. There was no any Internet, Facebook or Twitter. But we saw a little bit, and you and I discussed it, actually, years ago in 2009 with the Green Revolution. It was crushed immediately. One of the reasons is that the president then here, President Obama, said, we don't want to meddle. Correct. We don't want to meddle. That's a green light to the regime. And we saw a lot of it in 2019. But unfortunately, the U.S. administration, the Trump administration, was busy with what? Defending itself from the attacks coming from the, you know, inside politics of the United States. Now it's different. Now the Biden administration will have to position itself. Because eventually, if we do not help them, they're going to get to change the regime. So, so do you eventually. believe we're seeing the beginning of a revolution here? Is that what we're seeing? And what tactics can this current regime use to keep these Iranian protests from boiling over and maybe overthrowing the leadership? Well, first, number one, they are now starting the execution. Uh, by mm -hmm. tonight, two uh, Iranian dissidents or uh, demonstrators have been executed, one this morning, and they're scheduling one for tonight. But beyond that, what the Iranian regime is trying to do is play time. They want a silence from the United States administration, a silence from the European Union, so that they could take all their time to crush them. But they are mistaken, because this youth in Iran has no jobs, has nothing to wait for except do a change in Tehran. Mm. They've been focusing a lot on the Kurdish areas mm -hmm. of Iran. Why? 
Kurdish area in Iran is pretty big. It has about 7 million people. That's pretty large uh, for the Iranian population. But there are other areas now following Kurdistan who are, for example, the Baluch in eastern Iran, the Azeris in the north. There are Arab-speaking uh, Ahwazis in some other parts of Iran. Mm -hmm. The Kurds will fight. And the Kurds have a border in Iraq with the other Kurds inside uh, Iraq. Why? if? Uh, this administration claims to stand for human rights. I mean, Blinken sent a tweet out the other day saying the U.N. Human Rights Commission held a special session to address the deteriorating human rights situation in Iran. Uh, we continue to support the people in the face of brutal repression. What are they doing to hold Iran accountable, and why are they continuing to desire a nuke deal with a country like this? Well, that's precisely the question. First of all, there are three time zones behind. That's mm -hmm. the Biden administration. They are doing things that they should have, should have done in September. And the things they should do now, you know, they're not yet doing, which is basically, and number one, as you just said, why are they still negotiating the Iran deal? Right. First thing you do, you tell Iran, I'm suspending these negotiations until you uh, respect human rights. They're not doing this. And the reason why, which I also expand on in my book, mm -hmm. is that there are a lot of financial interests in the United States and in Europe, who wants to go to the Iranian market, who wants to strike deals, not for our national security interests, but because of their financial interests. And that is put, putting a lot of pressure on the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. In a recent interview with Foreign Policy magazine, uh, U.S. Special Envoy for Iran, Robert Malley, was asked about critics who feel that Washington is overusing its power to sanction other countries, including Iran, because sanctions often don't work. Take a listen. It's not the answer. If it had been the answer, then, you know, Iran would not be pursuing a nuclear weapon. Or it's not pursuing a nuclear weapon at this point, but it would not be advancing its nuclear program. Yeah, it's not advancing its nuclear program. He goes on to say that the nuclear deal was a result of diplomacy with uh, sanctions. Now, last time I checked, that didn't work, Wally. It did not. So, so how do you work with this regime? What should the U.S. government be doing? Well, first of all, in 2015, we have an example. There is a jurisprudence about what to do and what happens if you actually sign with this regime and send $150 billion, all right? So the idea under the Obama administration, and the gentleman was with the Obama administration, mm -hmm. was that this will moderate Iran. Send them money, they'll do business. What did they do with $150 billion? bought weapons, exactly right. ballistic missiles. So that's not the good model for the future. Had the President Obama in 2009 s stood with the Iranian revolt at the time, we would have been dealing with a peaceful Iran today. I imagine you touch on this in your forthcoming book. Iran has been a destabilizing force, not only in the region, around the world. Uh, their influence in Iraq, Lebanon with Hezbollah, uh, Yemen with the yeah. Houthis, how likely is it that we see a collapse of this regime? And what replaces the regime should it get overthrown? In my view, historical view, so it's not, I'm not limited by time here, I would mm -hmm. say this regime is dead, politically oh. dead, because the youth, that is the future of this regime, is already against them. The question is how long would it take? Mm. How bad it's going to be? What do they do, bring back the Shah? I mean, he's over here in Northern Virginia, right? Well, yes, he's here in Northern yeah. Virginia, and there are resistance oppositions that the Congress is in touch with in Brussels, in France, around the world, even in Albania. But there are also these young, courageous boys and girls inside Iran. This is the future, actually. So now, how, how will Iran evolve under a post-Islamic republic is a matter that you and I, you know, will, will be observing for many years to come. Wow. My concern is, when will that change occur? 
Unfortunately, as long as the U.S. administration, this one, is not pushing forward for a change, mm. it's going to take time. And with time comes drama and bloodshed. And yeah, well, th this is good. You, you could call this chapter dealing with dictators. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know why we bend over for the Chinese who are slaughtering their people, locking them in buildings and burning them alive. We bend over for the Iranians who are, who are butchering their own people and holding down their aspirations while exporting terror to the entire world. I don't understand this. It just doesn't make any, it just doesn't make basic common sense. Forget international diplomacy or policy. It, 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 and it, there's no American interest in this, it seems to me. So I, I don't know why we're, we're pursuing this. There are financial interests which are not the national security interests ah. of the United States. Remember, when we did a deal with the Taliban, we discovered that there were interests involved in the Muslim Brotherhood, companies, mm. controlled companies. And now we realize that some of these interests are behind this policy of cutting a deal with Iran so that they will make those interests, but not the American people. Awful. Before we go, a uh, story I need to get to in Nicaragua. Three Catholic priests, two seminarians and a deacon and a photojournalist are still being held in prison in Managua. Uh, they were supposed to appear for a hearing this week, but they were not brought before the judge. In addition, a Nicaraguan bishop, Rolando Alvarez, has been branded a dissident for witnessing to the faith. He's since been detained. Uh, been held since August, and the Sisters of Charity have been expelled from the country. Pope Francis has said nothing, sadly, about this situation. Your thoughts? Well, I think the United States should be more vigorous in condemning these activities. I mean, we have been siding over the past two years with every single leftist, radical regime and organization in Latin America. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Brazil, for example, the crisis between the two sides, we are praising Lula, <laughs> Lula who has strategic relations with every single radical regime in the Middle East and Asia. And same thing goes for Cuba. And uh, so these radical regimes take a cue from how we are designing our new foreign policy, which is not with the people or with the church, mm -hmm. but with, the, with these authoritarian leaders. Before I let you go, tell me about the new book, Iran, an imperialist Republic and U.S. policy. I know people can pre-order it now. Why did you write the book? Why now? I wrote that book in my brain for the last 30 years. I was observing, analyzing. So it's a, almost an encyclopedia, but very much condensed. It's tough, but it's easy. But the most important matter is that I, I, I looked at the Iranian revolts one after the other, and uh -huh. I projected that eventually the big one is coming. It's like the earthquakes. Mm. And at the same time, I was very concerned about our policy regarding Iran, because this could harm the Abraham Accord, could harm peace in the region. So I said to myself, I need to enlighten the American public, and I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. It was projected for 2023. But my publisher, Raymond, said, no, no, there is a revolt. Got to go now. Go there, go well, now. your timing is perfect, Waleed Ferris. We will leave it there. Iran, an imperialist republic and U.S. policy, is available for pre-order now at WaleedFarrisIran.com. And beginning next week, the book is available on Amazon, wherever books are sold. Waleed Ferris, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Raymond, as usual. And The Wise Men Who Found Christmas is now available at bookstores everywhere and online makes a great Christmas gift. And I have to tell you, I've been having the most incredible time on tour. Nashville was just incredible last weekend. We sold out of books. One man drove 40 miles to get more copies. The incredible people. I thank all of you for coming out. And the book tour rolls on. Just two more stops on Saturday, December 10th. I'll be in Washington, D.C. at the Museum of the Bible at 1 p.m. And on December 16th, 
I'll be at Books and Greetings in Northvale, New Jersey. My last stop, go to RaymondArroyo.com for all the details. Of course, the book is also available at the EWTN catalog. And the Kirkus Review, which is kind of the gold standard for book reviews, they issued this about the wise men who found Christmas this week. It reads, Arroyo's book seeks to strip the Magi story of the fictional embellishments the tale has gained over time, returning the classic Christmas story to a more biblical, historical Bethlehem. Lafayette's Magi, that's my illustrator, are a triumph of representation, a far cry from the usual bland nativity scenes, and inspires, with the awe of the season, a wondrous, historically grounded Christmas story with vivid images. So thankful for that. And, uh, of course, go out and get your copy of The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. Bill Donahue is up next. But first, the Vatican Nativity in St. Peter's Square has been unveiled. Pope Francis also met with the artisans and other contributors to this year's indoor display, who are from Guatemala. He urged the rediscovery of the true meaning of Christmas, and he added, the nativity scene helps us find the real richness of Christmas, simple and familiar. The nativity recalls a Christmas that is different from the consumerist and commercial. It reminds us how good it is for us to cherish moments of silence and prayer in our days, often overwhelmed by frenzy. He is so right. And uh, I love that we can celebrate a nativity scene at the Vatican. There's not odd things happening. It's just beautiful and classic. Now to a disturbing story. Uh, a Newman Center at the University of Nebraska received a death threat in a note by pro-abortion group Jane's Revenge. This is yet another incident targeting pro-lifers and church groups in the wake of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Should these threats be taken more seriously? Here to share his thoughts on this story and more is sociologist and president of the Catholic League, Dr. Bill Donahue. Bill, thank you for being here. I want to start with this note thank from you. Jane's Revenge, Bill. I'll read this to you. It says, if our right to abortion in Bellevue is taken away due to the attempt to pass an abortion ban and it gets passed, we will shoot up your Newman Center with our new AR-74 rifles. Sincerely, Jane's Revenge, end quote. Bill, as you know, this is just one of many threats directed at crisis pregnancy centers, churches, but this one is particularly disturbing. What do you make of these threats, now extending, apparently, to Catholic centers at colleges and the anti-Catholic slant in these threats? Well, it's been going on now for months. Uh, you know, they, they are very consistent, aren't they? They want to take out their rifles and kill the pro-life people, and they want the kids to be killed in the womb. So uh, bloodthirsty is what they are. I wrote to uh, the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, uh, uh, several months ago about Jane's revenge, uh, asked him to have a, a probe, an investigation uh, as to what's going on. I know they're kind of loosely affiliated, but they can find out who they are if they want to. Mm. And, of course, he never replied. So now we expect that Jim Jordan, Representative Jim Jordan from Ohio, might be the new uh, head of the judiciary, the House Judiciary Committee uh, next year, so we're going to ask him to have an investigation. Mm. You've got these groups like Antifa and, uh, uh, and Jane's Revenge. Uh, they are really the, the ultimate fascist of our day. They mm. believe in violence. They believe in randomness. They believe in targeting people who are innocent. They don't believe in engaging in, in, in conversation and dialogue. They have no website. There's no place that you can really reach them. 
Uh, so they're, they're acting in a kind of a stealth-like fashion, and they need to be crushed. Hmm. Local Nebraska law enforcement uh, agencies have issued statements, Bill, assuring the public that this threat is going to be investigated. Given the lack of federal attention that these kinds of threats, since Roe v. Wade was overturned, do you feel confident that violence or these threats of violence against pro-life groups and even a Newman Center is being taken seriously enough? Well, I put more faith in the states. I really do. And it depends on the state legislature, obviously, and some of the people mm -hmm. there. Uh, the, the federal government has not shown under the Biden administration that they're interested in this. They have all kinds of investigations going on about things that they're interested in. But when it comes to violence against the pro-life people, uh, they don't seem to care. Mm. Their enthusiasm for abortion is off the charts, and so they don't want to be perceived as being uh, any, uh, offending the, the, the abortion uh, fanatics. Mm. Uh, and yet, one, I don't care what side you're on on the, on the issue of abortion. It would seem to me, look, if somebody's going to targeting Planned Parenthood uh, abortion clinics and blowing them up and, and Planned Parenthood offices, I would speak out against it. No. This shouldn't have to be uh, an issue that cuts that way. Yeah. But the pro-life people now are being victimized and the media are not reporting on it because the media are largely in, in the, in the pro-abortion camp. Bill, I want to move on to another story. And, uh, th these may be related to what we just spoke about. Uh, the Respect for Marriage bill just passed the House. It passed the Senate last week. It's expected to be signed by the president. It essentially repeals the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act and would require all states to recognize any and all marriages, regardless of sex, race, ethnicity, or national origin performed in any other state. Now, last month, the U.S. bishops issued a statement regarding the amendments to that act, and it said the amended act will put the ministries of the Catholic Church, people of faith, and other Americans who uphold a traditional meaning of marriage at greater risk of government discrimination. Bill, your thoughts on the bishops' objections here, and do you expect to see um, infringements on the church's ability to express uh, its conscience on this matter of marriage. Well, I commend the bishops for speaking out on this, and particularly Cardinal Dolan has been very good on this issue. Uh, you know, the question about there are some religious liberty protections and amendments. Uh, the question is, are they strong enough? When some people tried to make them stronger, they were shot down. So that makes me think that they're probably not strong enough. Hmm. We know one thing for a fact. The, the legal question will, is yet to be decided, but they're clearly making it difficult for people who believe that marriage is an institution uh, for men and women, for the procreation of the family, they're making it difficult for us to be accepted in our society. They are stigmatizing and marginalizing us, mm -hmm. because if you read the actual bill, it celebrates gay marriage, all right? Now, that Ogrefell uh, decision was made out of whole cloth. Scalia was right about that. Uh, they basically said that for from time immemorial, that uh, everybody was wrong and everybody ever sat as a jurist on the Supreme Court was wrong and Obama was wrong and all these people were wrong because they believed that marriage between a man and woman. They, these guys rolled out of bed one day and said, no, two men can get married. Well, marriage is about the family. They throw in the interracial marriage thing. That's a red herring. No, nobody's complaining about that. You're talking about behavior. People have a right to, to pass moral strictures and norms on the basis of behaviors which they think are inimical to the best interests of the social order. Marriage exists for a reason. And if it doesn't have any good social reason, then just do away with it. People will always find a way to fornicate. You can have polygamy. There's no limiting principle. I don't think the, the, the American people themselves have really thought this thing through. I am afraid that, yes, uh, there's going to be an attempt uh, at thought control to get us into line, and they're already marginalizing us. 
We are now the bigots. If you believe that marriage is between a, is, is, is between a man and a woman, somehow you are now the bigot, okay? Uh, it, 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 the whole thing has gone topsy-turvy in this madness of our age. Bill, I want to move on to another First Amendment issue. Uh, the Catholic League filed an amicus brief at the Supreme Court. Uh, the brief is written in support of a Colorado woman, a web designer, who would be subjected to an anti-discrimination act in Colorado that would compel her to design a website celebrating same-sex marriage. Why did your organization file this brief? Well, largely because of the masterpiece cake uh, one. There was a guy, Jake Phillips, who a few years ago, you remember, he didn't want to uh, custom make a cake for uh, two guys who claimed to be getting married. He never denied homosexuals the right to sell any of his, any of his uh, uh, bakery goods. He just simply said, you're asking me now to affirm behavior, which I can't accept. It got caught up in a technicality, uh, and, and they threw it out. I mean, he won on that, but he won on a technicality. The larger macro issue was never resolved. So yeah. you have gay rights versus religious liberty. Well, the, the reason why we got involved in an amicus brief on this, uh, or our Pittsburgh firm of Gallagher and Giancolo, uh, is because we understand what's at stake here. This is, again, a matter of thought control. This woman has her own free speech rights, which happen to be her conscience rights grounded in her religion. She has no problem uh, servicing people who are gay or straight or white or black or whoever you are. Mm -hmm. She does have a problem. Uh, trying to affirm, to sanction, to, to, to give her blessing to uh, a gay marriage ceremony, which is based on behavior. Now, some people like Father Martin, uh, the, the LBGTQI++ uh, priest, he came out and said that, oh, no, no, this would mean that uh, then you can discriminate and uh, a web designer wouldn't have to be able to service uh, uh, somebody if they're Jewish or, or black or Buddhist or whatever. No, 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 it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with a scribe well, or demographic characteristics. Yeah, Fa Father James Martin and other critics, uh, they say that this has nothing to do with free speech, that it's codifying homophobia if you let this stand. You would say what? Yeah. Well, I would say, is he calling the bishops for homophobes? He effectively is. The bishops signed an amicus brief as the Catholic League did. Are they all a bunch of homophobes? Look, I don't know if anybody in my whole life was a phobia about, homo about homosexuals, right? I know people who don't like the homosexual radical agenda being shoved down their throat. That doesn't make you phobic, all right? Look, if you're going to say to a Jewish guy who's an artist that you must be required to put a swastika on a synagogue, here's a photo, and I want you to paint the swastika on that, he has a right to say no because you're asking him to affirm behavior that he doesn't want. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the individual demographic characteristics of the person. Mm -hmm. uh, and people are muddying the issue because they can't win on the basis of, of, of its merits. Mm. We'll see what the Supreme Court says. Bill, finally, Christmas is right around the corner. The Catholic League has put up its annual nativity scene in New York Central Park. We have an image here. And you're following several Christmas controversies. I want to get into this one. The Human Resources Department in King County, Washington, which includes Seattle, have decided that all Christmas and Hanukkah decorations are banned. And this rule has some notable exceptions. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, you can, you can wear Black Lives Matter, which is a fraud, as, as we know, and uh, is engaged in violence, uh, now under investigation. But if you're a Jew, you can't wear uh, uh, a Star of David. If you're a Christian, you can't wear uh, a cross. So, so all secular symbols, including terrorist organizations, they're allowed, but not when it comes to Catholics and Protestants. 
Now, they've even gone so far as to say that if you're working from home and you got your little Zoom call with other people, <laughs> we don't want religious symbols in the background. So they're into your home. This has to be called fascism, okay? This is the hand of government now policing people on the basis of conscience, on the basis of their First Amendment right to religious liberty in their own home. Where will they go next? And the fact that this is taking place in an area which is known for anarchism, Mm. Urban anarchism, they've destroyed their city uh, with, with their summer of love, of course, which is a summer of hate. So the, it's all tied together, isn't it? Here's the thread. Militant secularism kills. It kills civil liberties and it kills cops and it kills innocent people. And, and it, it, King County in Washington is one of the most extreme places you could live in the face of the earth. Uh, it, it's, uh, and, and, and that's why people need to, need to uh, point out what's going on and fight They'll back. We need, we need a winter of resistance. The celebration of Christmas has come under fire in recent years in the interest of inclusivity. But you're finding that inclusivity is being used to dilute or even neuter Christmas. What are you seeing this year? Oh, you know, it used to be that uh, December was the uh, dilemma month. You know, what are we going to do? There are other holidays in December. Yeah, there are. There are lots of holidays in, in, in February, but we call it Black History Month, don't we? So why did you choose December? Typically what they did, the people who are the anti-Christmas uh, people, they would say, we have to celebrate Eastern religions. I'm all in favor of celebrating East religions on their own dime, at their own time, okay? Mm. You don't hijack Christmas uh, in the name of inclusivity and shove it down our throat. I believe in respecting all religions equally. They don't, and they have a particular animus against Christians, and they always express it uh, at Christmas time. We're Bill, not fooled by them. Before we go, you all have a big announcement Monday about Disney and a new project you're involved in. You want to tell us anything yeah, about it? Yeah, we're going to roll it out. Well, we want to roll it out on Monday, okay. and uh, there could be more about it. Uh, the big day is coming up in January, in the beginning of January. Uh, we know what Disney was, the most family-friendly institution in America, and we know what it's become. And we're going to tell a story about it, and I think it's going to go over big, and... Uh, Stay tuned on Monday. Bill Donahue, thank you for being here. Merry Christmas, Bill. Merry Christmas. Who were the Bethlehem shepherds? Why were they important enough for St. Luke to include in his gospel? And what have we gotten wrong about them over the centuries? Joining me now to answer these questions and more, author of the new book, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds, Father Dwight Longenecker. Father Dwight, Merry Christmas. Thank you for being here. Why are the shepherds so important to St. Luke and his telling of the story of the birth of Christ? And why do they remain such a presence, do you think, after multiple uh, uh, generations here, millennium? Well, I, I think they were important to St. Luke because uh, they were relatively famous in their day. And to understand all this, we have to try to understand the beginnings of the New Testament. Mm. So remember the... Um, by the time St. Luke is writing down the story of Jesus' birth, this is at least uh, 40 or 50 or more years after the events. So we have to ask ourselves, how did that story actually get from 40, or, you know, descend 40 or 50 years until St. Luke could actually hear it? Hmm. And uh, I believe from my research that it was actually the Bethlehem shepherds themselves who passed the story on to their descendants who became the uh, early church in Bethlehem and that those people actually passed the story on to St. Luke, 
maybe the next generation or even two generations after the actual events. Hmm. Well, in 2017, you wrote a book that I loved, uh, The Mystery of the Magi. Uh, and it's really, it set the record straight about what we truly know about the Magi. Uh, that history, by the way, was a big influence on my picture book, led me down many interesting roads. What drew you to want to find out more about not only the shepherds of Bethlehem, but all of these figures surrounding the nativity and to put them in a proper historical context? Well, the reason it's important to me is because, you know, the story of Christmas is very magical. Mm. Uh, the story itself has lots of magical, so-called magical elements. There's angels, there's messages from angels, there's some mysterious wizards from supposedly the <laughs> Far East who supposedly follow a magical star across the desert sands. Uh, there's animals, there's a mother, a newborn child, all these charming, uh, somewhat uh, beautiful elements to the story, and therefore it lend itself to further elaboration mm -hmm. uh, over the century. And in the book, I reckon it, I liken it to being a Christmas tree, uh, a bare Christmas tree, but then we add lots of ornaments to it. Mm -hmm. And the bare story of Christmas has added lots of magical elements uh, to the already um, quite marvelous elements in the Bible. And then secular Christmas has added even, added even more magical elements, like mm. uh, a magical elf who flies through the sky on Christmas Eve and goes, squeezes down everybody's chimney to give them gifts. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, a flying snowman, all these other magical elements have come into this magical time of Christmas, mm. which makes a lot of people think that the whole story is magical and a make-believe, mm. as if the whole story of Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus uh, and the shepherds and the wise men is also uh, no more than a fairy tale. Yeah. So I wanted, to get, I wanted to go through and go back and say, well, actually, this is rooted in real history. And what did the real history look like? Hmm. And you argue that much of what we know about the shepherds, the Bethlehem shepherds, is historically incorrect, inaccurate. How so? Well, this is because over the centuries, of course, remember, by the time the story comes to us, it's now 2,000, 2000 years later. Uh, and by the time it's come to us, it's been filtered through various different eons of uh, and different cultures for the last 2,000 years. So mm. the time with the Christmas story gets to us in America in the 21st century, it's accumulated even more um, elements which aren't original to the to the story itself. So, for instance, uh, we all have uh, a crib set in our home or in our church, which is usually a rustic-looking stable or barn with the figures inside. Well, that comes to us from St. Francis in, I guess it would have been the uh, 12th or 13th century. Uh, and the stable that we're looking at, therefore, is a kind of stable from Europe in the Middle Ages. And it makes sense that people in the Middle Ages in Europe would have thought that the stable was like that. But in fact, a stable in, for people in first century Palestine was very different. And what was it like, Father? Describe what, what that stable would have looked like in that first century. And what does well, the historical record tell us about these shepherds of Bethlehem? Well, when you go to the Holy Land, one of the things that is striking is how many caves they have. Uh -huh. And they'll say, here's the cave where Jesus was born. Here's the cave where he was buried. Here's the cave where Mary was born. And you're saying, were all these people cavemen? Did they live in caves? <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, they did live in caves. Right back through the ancient times, uh, that area of Palestine with soft limestone hills is very amenable to natural caves and digging man-made caves as well, or extending the natural caves. Mm -hmm. And so if you go to Palestine and the West Bank even today, you will find Bedouin tents and small houses built in front of caves. 
So the houses were built in front of the caves, and sometimes they lived in the caves, and sometimes they lived in the houses in front of the caves, but they used the caves for their stable, to stable their animals. Hmm. And, and, and what do we know about these, these uh, wise men? Why would God choose to, ha I mean, shepherds, rather. Why would God choose these shepherds to be the first eyewitnesses of the events in Bethlehem on the night of Jesus' birth? First of all, we need to know also more about Bethlehem at the time. Bethlehem at the time was a simple agricultural village. You know, the idea that we have a little town of Bethlehem with cute little houses and a star shining overhead. Well, that's the stuff of Christmas cards, which is all very pretty. But it would have been a very simple agricultural village with small houses built in front of caves along little narrow pathways. And uh, that understanding of Bethlehem helps us to also understand who lived in Bethlehem. Mm. And the people who lived in Bethlehem were mostly nomadic shepherds, semi-nomadic shepherds. They lived in a town, but they wandered out and about to find uh, pasture and grazing for their flocks. And mm. so when uh, they come to speak to the shepherds, they're basically speaking to the general, simple population of Bethlehem at the time. Mm. In the book, you write about the appearance of the angels to the shepherds and why their message is significant. The angel's message to the shepherds, for those who might have forgotten, is, be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Why were the manger and swaddling clothes assigned to the shepherds about who this Jesus was, and, and, and why do you think that's present in the story? Well, you know, there is a kind of uh, theory or story going around that the shepherds were actually sacred shepherds, and they were raising the lambs that would be sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem just five or six miles away, and that the shepherds would take a newborn lamb, and they would wrap it in strips of cloth and lay it in a little feeding trough, waiting for the priest to come and examine the lamb to see if it was suitable for sacrifice. Ah. Well, one of the things, reasons I went to Bethlehem and researched this was to try to see if there's any evidence for that. And I'm afraid to say, as far as we can tell, there is no evidence for that. Okay, mm. that's a story or a preaching point which seems rather good and seems rather nice, and it would be nice if it were true, but I'm afraid we can't find any evidence for that. But what we do find is that there is evidence that the animals that were kept in this five or six mile area between Jerusalem and Bethlehem were actually designated for temple sacrifice. Mm. So at least part of that story is true, and that is that the shepherds were probably raising some of the animals to be used in the temple sacrifice. In other words, mm. uh, they were raising the Lamb of God. Therefore, when they went and saw this baby, and remember, they and their ancestors had lived in Bethlehem for um, generations. And for generations, Bethlehem was known as the city of David and the city of the shepherd king. Huh. So they would have known the prophecies about uh, the Messiah or the new shepherd king coming from the city of David. So when the angels announced that to them, they would have put two and two together and said, perhaps this is the Messiah we're all looking for. Why do you think it's important, um, Father, for people to understand? I mean, I love the fact that that story, which I've heard many times from the pulpit, uh, it's not true. And some people get rattled. They're disturbed. Look, I've had people come up to me during book signings and say, you know, why do you have to, you know, you're dispensing with a tradition. They feel you're somehow uh, disrupting their traditional take on Christmas. What would you tell them? 
Well, you know, the stories of Christmas, I sometimes liken it to the story of King Arthur. There was a real King Arthur uh, in probably Roman Britain who was, an, who was a Celtic chieftain. This is a historical sort of root of the story of King Arthur. But look at all the stuff that spun out of King Arthur. Medieval poetry, 19th century poetry, Disney films, a Broadway musical, <laughs> endless TV shows and so forth, all about King Arthur and Merlin and Lancelot and Guinevere and all that great stuff. All of that's fine, but if you're looking for the historical Arthur, you're going to cut through all that stuff to find the historical Arthur as well. So in, in my book, I say, look, all the decorations to our Christmas story, the little drummer boy, the fourth wise man, uh, the littlest shepherd, all this sort of stuff, it's fine. But can, remember, it's ornament, it's, it, it's um, decoration on the tree. It's not mm -hmm. the fact. What's the big takeaway you want people to have after reading The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds? I think one of the things that impressed upon me when I was in Jerusalem for um, two months earlier this year to research the book was to realize, wow, yes, this really happened. The stories of the gospel took place here in this place. These stones speak to us. Mm -hmm. These towns are still here. These villages are still here. When you go to Bethlehem, you can see wandering in the fields there even today, shepherds with their flocks. Yeah. You can st still find people living in caves and houses outside of caves, even in the Holy Land today. So you can say, this happened. This is where it took place. The Son of God was born of Mary here in this place. Uh, and we can visit the Church of the Nativity and be almost certain that this is the actual spot where he was born. Yeah. And that's a great it's, gift, I think, to rescue it from the mythology that surrounded it over time. Exactly. Yeah. Father Dwight Longenecker, thank you so much for being here. The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds is available now at bookstores everywhere online. And Father joins me on a special Fox Nation production, uh, December 16th, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. His work in this area also is exemplary, uh, and he's featured prominently in the special. I hope you'll join us for that as well. Father Longenecker, Merry Christmas. Thank you for being here. Thanks very much. Thank you. He placed Jesus in The Chosen, and ever since the crowd-funded launch of that TV series on the life of Jesus Christ, his career has skyrocketed. The show attracted 300 million viewers over two seasons, and the third season, which was a smash hit in theaters, starts streaming on December 11th. Joining me now to discuss the Advent Prayer Challenge on the Hollow Catholic app, the prayer app, is Jonathan Rumi. Jonathan, thanks for being here. Uh, before we get thanks into the me. Advent Prayer Challenge, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about your background and faith. Your father was sure. Egyptian, your mother was Irish, but you mm -hmm. were raised Greek Orthodox. When did you convert to Catholicism and why? Well, um, yeah, so my, my parents come from different backgrounds. Um, my father, growing up in Egypt, uh, went to Catholic school because as a Christian, uh -huh. that, that was your option. You didn't really mm -hmm. go to public school. Um, and so I was baptized Greek Orthodox, uh, living in New York City. And then when we moved out of the city into the suburbs of New York, there weren't as many options. And my father, being so familiar with the Catholic faith and, and comfortable with it, um, and, uh, for us, it was more of a transition than anything. It wasn't really like mm -hmm. a decision to say, let's convert. It was just like, let's go down to the church down the street, which I'm familiar with. My mother obviously grew up in it. Yeah. And uh, it really was a no-brainer. And I just I made my sacraments, uh, communion and uh, confirmation, first communion wow. confirmation. And it just kind of stuck. What has it been like for you to portray Jesus? Obviously, this has exploded around the world, uh, The Chosen. 
And were, was there any hesitation? Were you afraid to portray Jesus at the beginning when this was offered to you? No, because I had had, uh, God sort of gave me several test runs at the role. I had done uh, three separate short films with Dallas Jenkins, the co-creator, uh, the creator of uh, The Chosen prior to the actual series commencing. And then also during that time, I was uh, co-writing, co-producing and acting in uh, a passion play that uh, I performed here in Los Angeles. Um, and then I had done one other traveling uh, wow. show, multimedia show, uh, playing Jesus. A year before I met Dallas, back in 2013 with St. Luke Productions, I played uh, Jesus in a, in a media one-woman one show about St. Faustina. Yeah, I remember that. So Is... it, didn't, it, didn't, uh, it didn't intimidate me. I, I kind of felt that it was something that brought me closer to my faith, uh, brought me closer to Jesus, using the gifts that God provided me with. And when it actually turned into an opportunity to do a TV show, I kind of took a step back and I said, okay, I think God was preparing me this whole time how, for this show. Jonathan, how did, you know, my, my pal Jim Caviezel was transformed, I think, by that role. Um, it it certainly deepened his faith. What has it done to you? Is there anything tangible that you see in your own life that's shifted? as a result of oh, playing this role? I mean, a thousand percent. You can't spend that much time with the character, with mm -hmm. the person, with the being of Jesus in your in your consciousness and not be affected by it. There's just no way for it to, to not affect you if you're truly invested in as an actor in that character, in mm -hmm. that role. Uh, it starts to seep into you. And if you're already a, a Christian and, uh, or a Catholic Christian, in my, in my case, uh, it just brings everything to life. The whole thing is sort of a like an Ignatian spirituality exercise in what, you know, asking yourself, what would it be like to be here with Jesus, with the disciples in Galilee, in Capernaum, you know? Um, so it's, to me, it's been like a, just an extended prayer session. Well, I'm glad you got The Chosen and not Richard III, the miniseries. It, this is a far better <laughs> option for you as a man and as an actor. I want to discuss your partnership with the Catholic app, Hollow. Uh, you yeah. and several cast members of The Chosen have partnered with them to guide users through 25 days of prayer, a prayer challenge. Uh, it traces yes. the story of Advent through Scripture from the Garden of Eden to the manger in Bethlehem. What can people expect? What is entailed in this 25-day prayer challenge? Well, um, Hallow being the, right now, I think it's the largest Christian app, I think, even in the world, not just Catholic, mm -hmm. but... Uh, the, just worldwide, it's it's huge, and and uh, Hallow has gone to great lengths to to give people more opportunities to get to to have a personal relationship with Jesus through uh, meditations. And the Advent Challenge with the Chosen is another way to learn more about the journey of Jesus from the Old Testament through the New Testament, through his forebears, through his his ancestors, um, through the prophecy in the Scripture that all pointed to you know, his, his um, being born in Bethlehem, uh, and to really just meditate through all of those moments uh, what the coming of the Messiah might look like mm. and, and what it actually looked like and the humility of it and, and uh, essentially God's mercy and compassion throughout salvation history um, mm. for his people. Um, so it's, it's a beautiful way to connect to this material in a very intentional way yeah. um, with characters from our show, which people have just really responded yeah. to. Uh, it's been such a, a, a successful challenge and a great way. To, I'm praying it myself, you know, because I just love listening to you know, other actors, you know, read the, from the scriptures mm -hmm. and, and then 
actually drop in and, and meditate, and it's a, it's a really moving experience. Uh, Jonathan, this is not your first partnership with Hollow. Um, this no. past Lent, you and Jim Caviezel partnered, uh, inviting people to do that uh, Pray 40 challenge, which included Lent, daily yeah. prayers, meditations on the seven last words of Christ. How did you get involved mm -hmm. with Hallow? Well, I've, I've had a partnership with Hallow now for a couple of years. I started by uh, reading the Sermon on the Mount, uh, really, from the, the uh, book of Matthew, and uh, I think starting with chapter 4 or 5, and then that went really successful. That was sort of as a, as a sleep meditation, so people could fall asleep uh, to the, 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 the lulling sounds of me whispering scripture, and uh, it, it really took off. And then they started to um, ask me to come back and do more uh, you know, meditations with them. And, and uh, there's the Divine Mercy Chaplet. There's Scriptural Rosary. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of these different resources there. And, uh, and then as they've been expanding, um, for the, the major seasons, Advent and Lent, they, they've had these great partnerships with Jim Caviezel, with Mark Wahlberg is another one. Um, you can pray. I often pray the, uh, the rosary with, with Mark um, because it's just, it's, I just love hearing other people, especially in, as an actor. It's, it's, you know, it's really refreshing to see other um, people in our industry of faith not afraid to proclaim their faith and to pray out their faith. Yeah. In addition to your support of Hallow, uh, you you support persecuted Christians. And in 2020, I know you spoke at the March for Martyrs, uh, which raised yeah. awareness about Christian persecution and advocating religious freedom. This is a personal mission for you because of your family, I'm told. Yeah, you know, um, my father, growing up in the Middle East as a Christian, um, I, I think by in any time period is, is not is not uh, an easy road to, to, to hoe, so to speak. Um, and so I think there are so many people uh, that are being uh, persecuted constantly and throughout time um, mm -hmm. that it's not something we hear about a lot in, in, in the news and public. Um, you know, it's kind of a, it's sort of a forgotten about issue. I mean, there are so many humanitarian issues that need our attention, but to me, this is no less important uh, and and um, extremely personal. Mm. What do you hope people get from this Advent 25-day prayer challenge this Christmas season? What do you hope they take from the experience? I hope they get a sense of peace. They get a sense of connectedness to their Savior, um, to, to have a better understanding of the history of the prophecies behind mm. Christ's birth. And, um, you know, I think that... that uh, the world is a pretty dark place right now, and I think this particular meditation offers people light and hope and encouragement. And so, um, yeah, I would just hope that uh, you know people download the app, and they you know you can download it for free, and and uh, I think you can get three months for free right yeah. now from one member, and and uh, really just drop into to connecting yourself to uh, your you know yeah. to God and to, to Christ well, in a way that you may tried before. Jonathan, people often ask me why, you know, why I wrote this book about the wise men, and I say it's because we shouldn't let Christmas wash over us. We should run out like the wise men and pursue Christmas. Go, go chase it. Find it. And really, this app allows people to do that. The light is found inside, not outside. It's inside all of us. And, uh, and I love that you all are giving people an opportunity to do that. Jonathan Rumi, thank you for being here. If you'd like to watch The Chosen, seasons one and two and soon three will be available 
at the App Store. Go and download the Chosen app. And for more on the 25-day Advent Prayer Challenge, go to hollow.com. Jonathan Rumi, Merry Christmas. Great to see you. Merry Christmas, Raymond. Thank you. And before we go, it's important, I think, to draw you to things that are good and uplifting for the family. I want to remind you that Father Stu Reborn, starring Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson, is hitting theaters this weekend, December 9th. Now, it's rated PG-13. As Mark Wahlberg told us last week, there's a reason he wanted to open the film up to family audiences. I don't think there's anything better than them experiencing it together, you know, in a theater with other families and hopefully spreading the word and spreading the love. I think, um, you know, we all know that Christmas, it's a wonderful and festive time, but the real meaning behind Christmas uh, has much more to do with our faith uh, in the good Lord. So, you know, I think it's, uh, it's perfect timing. And again, the, God has his own plan in his own time. And, you know, how he's having audiences discover this film, it's been incredible. Father Stu Reborn is in theaters now. Check your local listings. That's all the time we have. Be sure to catch up next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Happy Advent. See you next time. Bye now.